I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astro Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about the U.S. arming of far-right elements in Ukraine, particularly the Azov Battalion. It's a subject that has at times been written off as Kremlin propaganda, but my guest, the journalist Lev Galinkin, assures me it is very, very real. Lev is the author of A Backpack, A Bear, and Eight Crates of Vodka. He came over to the U.S. as a child from eastern Ukraine, and has written for such established outlets as The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Time.com, CNN, The Forward, The Nation, and The Boston Globe, among others. This is a rather in-depth conversation that gets into the nitty-gritty of Ukrainian ultranationalism and the U.S. support for it as tensions between the U.S. and Russia have escalated in recent years. All the while, neo-Nazis in the United States are making their way to Ukraine to network with and gain paramilitary training from the nation's ultra-nationalist elements. Lev and I will discuss all of that and much more in the discussion to follow, as well as why we should be concerned about the Azov Battalion and Ukrainian ultra-nationalism, even when the story is utilized by the Kremlin for propaganda purposes. More on that at the top of our conversation. But first, a word from one of our sponsors, namely the transmedia storyteller, Joseph Matheny. 
the pioneer of alternate reality games, who has a new audio drama called Zen, X-E-N, the Zen of the Other, a real mind-bender of an audio experience now available for listening on your favorite podcast apps. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, Lev Galinkin, author of A Backpack, A Beer, and Eight Crates of Vodka. Uh, his work has been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, and Time.com, among others. And we're going to be talking about the subject of the Ukrainian far right and the Azov Battalion. And I want to make clear just straight out the gate. Uh, this episode isn't meant, this conversation isn't meant as uh, an attack on any, it's not an attack on Ukrainians uh, because I have Ukrainian listeners at this show. And I, I think, uh, Lev, if, if you want to explain a little bit more that th this is sort of a, a very heated topic at times and I, I think some people take it the wrong way when we talk about this issue. Of course, and thank you for having me on. Um, I am Ukrainian. I'm from Eastern Ukraine. I was born there. My, I had my childhood there. My parents were uh, born there. My grandparents were born there. So um, the last thing I want to do is uh, attack Ukrainians. And this is not an attack on Ukrainians any more than, uh, let's say, an attack on uh, people who stormed the Capitol is an attack on Americans. Any more than an attack about the people who marched in Charlottesville is an attack on Americans. So this is not a question about attacking Ukraine or Ukrainians. This is about specific, the specific situation with the far right in a foreign government that we are involved with. So uh, the vast majority of Ukrainians are not anti-Semitic. The president is Jewish. So um, that is most certainly a good indication. That being said, uh, you know, eight years of having an African-American president in America uh, didn't get rid of racism. So a lot of times people say, oh, Ukraine has a Jewish president. That means it can't have Nazis. Uh, that's like saying America had uh, Barack Obama, which means that uh, we didn't have any, you know, the, the terrorist attacks by white supremacists didn't happen because we had a black president, you know. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention real quick is the um, issue of Russian propaganda. Russian propaganda loves, loves, loves talking about Ukrainian Nazis. They love smearing Ukraine as a land where everybody's goose-stepping along the way, where it's nothing but fascists. And the Russian propaganda, that's, it basic, that's its job. Its job, it's, it's paid, it's organized by the Kremlin to uh, smear Ukraine and to smear, to smear opponents of Russia. So the problem is that people in America, especially members of the uh, military-industrial complex, Anything you say that is critical of Ukraine, they say, well, you're either you're carrying water for the Kremlin, you are uh, spreading Russian propaganda, you're helping Russian propaganda, okay? That is the most idiotic, idiotic possible argument to make. It's an argument that you make when you can't really make an, an actual argument. You smear your opponent. So to get things out of the way for that, the Kremlin propaganda loves anything bad about America. It especially loves race issues in America. 
And that goes back to Soviet times. Okay, for the longest time, anytime there's anything involving race in America, anytime a black man gets shot in America, okay, the Russian propaganda, you could you could see the smiles on their faces as they gleefully type away. So by that logic, anything anyone who talks about racial racism in America is helping Russian propaganda. So by that logic, uh, if we don't want to help Russian propaganda, we should never ever speak about any racial problems in America. Pretty stupid, huh? So uh, this isn't about Russian propaganda. This is about Ukraine. This is about American foreign policy, and this is about the reality on the ground. We'll get into that more. Uh, there, there's some things I want to talk about in regards to, uh, especially how elements of what I would call the the U.S. foreign policy establishment have reacted to uh, talk of the Azov Battalion. But first, uh, I'm assuming I may have listeners that are unfamiliar or have only heard uh, of the Azov Battalion in passing. And I think even more listeners that are very, very unfamiliar uh, with this issue of the far right in Ukraine. And, you know, as a Ukrainian, I know a little bit. uh, Well, uh, I have Ukrainian um, heritage in my family. Yeah, man. I I think that you know, a lot of people don't know that there's a deep history to all of this. And I know a little bit about that uh, figures going back to uh, like the World War II era, Stepan Bandera and whatnot. Uh, so maybe you could fill my listeners in on a little bit of the history of the Ukrainian far right, and then we can get into the Azov Battalion. Yeah. Um, when you say, and when anybody says Ukraine, when anybody in the news says Ukraine is doing this or Ukraine is doing that, Okay. You need to stop and ask yourself, which Ukraine? Because Ukraine is a country of 40 plus million people. And saying that Ukraine is X, Y, and Z, it it would be kind of like saying America is united around Joe Biden. Every American believes, or next to every American believes in Joe Biden. Or in Donald Trump, or saying America is united behind vaccine mandates. Okay, It's, it's just, it's a nonsense thing. Ukraine is a very, very, very split country. So historically, the the most nationalistic part of Ukraine, and this is where the veneration of Nazi collaborators is in the very, very west of the country based around Lviv and several other cities. When the uh, the Nazis invaded Ukraine, they welcomed them with open arms. They collaborated with them. They gleefully participated in the Holocaust. They formed... uh, at least two battalions that fought in the German, in the, in the Third Reich armed forces. And they, uh, they provided auxiliary police protection. They, they fully fought with the Germans. Real, they, real quick, ahead. I wanted to add, uh, and may, maybe we can get into this later, but apparently there's been a lot of um, attempts to create a revisionist history around this too, but we, we can get into that in a minute. Yeah. Well, they basically, yes, there's been a lot of attempts and they basically say, well, we, you know, we didn't fight, uh, we didn't fight with the Germans. We fought against the Soviet Union, uh, which, yeah, you fought against the Soviet Union with the, in the service of the Third Reich. You know, I mean, uh, I cover these collaborators a lot. I mean, every single one of them says they're a freedom fighter from every different nation. Okay. It's, it's all of these people who just love freedom, and uh, that love of freedom drove them to commit war crimes for Hitler. So that's a lot of the revisionists there. But long story short, Ukraine is a very divided country by language. I, I, I'm from Eastern Ukraine. I'm 
Ukrainian Ukraine from Eastern Ukraine was born there, but I speak Russian as my primary language. Okay, uh, in the in the Western Ukraine they speak Ukrainian. Um, it's divided by even religion, the, how people, the different Orthodox churches people go to. It's uh, divided by heroes, because in the in the very Western Ukraine, the, in the in the in the hotbed of Ukrainian ultranationalism, for example, there's um, the, to make it very simple, the figure there would be Stepan Bandera, the Nazi collaborator, who's worshipped as you know the, the the freedom fighter of Ukraine. I think there's actually uh, monuments to him uh, oh, that can even tons, be found in Ukraine. Tons, yeah, tons. Now in eastern Ukraine, for a long time uh, until the 2013-2014 uh, uprising, they had monuments still to Lenin lying. Uh, plenty of monuments. My home city of Kharkiv had monuments to Lenin, who, by the way, did a whole bunch of war crimes himself. So, the point is, for the it's kind of like how, and I use a lot of examples of America just because to help listeners understand. But it's kind of like in America, we have this unspoken type of rule where you don't put a Robert E. Lee statue in Harlem and you don't put a Malcolm X statue in the middle of Birmingham. You do that, you're going to have problems for one reason or another, okay? Or pick up, you don't put a Black Panther monument in Birmingham, okay? And that's how America stays together because we have we cannot we have to have some leeway. We we're a country that has very different opinions, very different facts, and there has to be some leeway. In Ukraine, the basic scenario was you do not put Lenin in Western Ukraine, and indeed, the moment Ukraine, the moment Ukraine got independence, in the west of Ukraine, every Lenin statue was cast down, and you don't put Stepan Bandera monuments in Eastern Ukraine. So I, I just wanted to add, so for people that are unfamiliar with this figure of Bandera, you, you got into it a little bit, but I believe he was deeply connected to an organization called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and that had a paramilitary wing uh, known as the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. And I believe the organization first arose in a part of Western Ukraine known as Eastern Galatia. Yes. Okay. Yes, and I just call it Galicia just for to to avoid confusion, you know. Um, but yes, it's it's an organization that was it was a fascist organization from the beginning. They were uh, their vision of Ukraine was an ethnically pure Ukraine uh, with a dictatorship. Uh, in fact, uh, you know they killed tens of thousands of Jews. They killed about uh, seventy thousand to hundred thousand Poles in the most savage way imaginable. They were anti-everybody who was, the one thing that people forget is they were actually anti-Ukrainian who were against them. And they killed a whole bunch of just ethnic Ukrainians who happened to be in their way. So it's it was very much a vision of Ukraine as a fascist entity. So when they say especially that they collaborated with the Nazis only out of convenience, it was not as much convenience. It was a whole. It was a very uh, similar mindset, and it was a, adopting the techniques of extermination for your enemies. Uh, you know, the only difference is the the Bandera people thought that they were the supreme beings, and the Germans thought that they were basically secondhand lackeys. That's only that's the only real difference. Um, and 
the vast majority, and again, this is like when Russian propaganda says Ukrainians are Nazis, the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians fought against the Nazis and died against the Nazis in millions. So, I mean, just to, just to give you an idea, like uh, in my city, my city is in Eastern Ukraine, Kharkiv, about, I would say, 240,000 people died in a single battle, the battle for Kharkiv. A single battle for a single city, 240,000 people died fighting the Nazis. I mean, Ukraine, you cannot, there's no such thing as a ground zero in Ukraine. Everywhere you go, it's just people, places where there's just been rivers of blood spilled fighting against Nazism. So that's, that's one thing definitely that Russian propaganda conveniently ignores, that you know, a tiny percentage of Ukrainians actually fought for Hitler and participated in the Holocaust. You know, tons, tons more fought against. But for the longest time, basically, ever since Ukraine got independence, there was this balance where various oligarchs would come to power. Some of them would have ties to the eastern part of the country. Some of them would have ties to the western part of the country. And so this would shift and shift but overall, it was kind of a balance. They didn't try to poke too much. Again, the, the, in the East, you could speak Ukrainian, uh, Russian. In the West, they spoke Ukrainian. Um, the younger generation was learning the Ukrainian language anyway. So Ukraine was on its way to just speaking Ukrainian, just generally everybody speaking it. Um, in, a, in a natural way, like the young people would speak it even in Eastern Ukraine, pretty much all the young, all the young people could speak Ukrainian. So, um, and this balance kept going and going until 2013, when this balance was shattered. The president of Ukraine in 2013 was Viktor Yanukovych. But he was from Eastern Ukraine. He was the one who coincidentally, uh, who worked with Paul Manafort, had long ties with Paul Manafort. Um, the thing about Viktor Yanukovych is everybody says he was, uh, he was uh, corrupt. Absolutely. He was a colossal corrupt scumbag, but he was a democratically elected scumbag. That's what, that is the first place where the narrative in America, where the American media and the foreign policy establishment begin to lie and twist the story is there. Viktor Yanukovych was a democratically elected president. With the Democrat, with the election signed off, by European organs and by the United Nations. He was a scumbag, but a democratically elected one, much as one could say, President Trump or President Biden or a whole bunch of other leaders, okay? And for Eastern Ukrainians, he was their scumbag. Just like before the president, the corrupt president before was Western Ukrainian, he was there and he was the Western Ukrainian scumbag. So Yanukovych, through a long, had to choose in 2013, he was being pulled to enter an economic alliance with the EU, and then Putin was pushing him to, push, to enter into, to continue and uh, be in an economic alliance with Russia. And Yanukovych, especially because so much of Eastern Ukraine, it works with Russia and is, uh, and is, just has business and, and economy tied to Russia, he backed out of the EU agreement, okay? He's originally, he said, I was going to go, I'm going to sign this with the EU. And he said, and then he said, no, he's backing out. Protests started 
in uh, November 2013. They went on for several months, okay? These protests calling for the overthrow of Yanukovych, okay? This is the Maidan uprising, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and that's when a parade of American statesmen, including Joe Biden, including the Assistant Secretary of State, uh, Victoria Nuland, including Senator John McCain and Senator Chris Murphy, some others, started going there and literally standing next to the protesters saying, we are with you, okay? Again, imagine what would happen if Russia sent a dog catcher from the smallest Russian village to join the January 6th uprising and say, we are with you. Imagine what would happen. Our media would go ballistic, okay? Now, and rightfully so, like what business do these people have? The question then is what business do senior members of the, of, of the American power of the structure have joining a protest against a democratically elected leader, okay? Joining a protest and saying, we are with you, okay? Now, yes, there were several million Ukrainians who fully supported this. There were several million in the streets, which is a big deal. But again, I could find several million people in America who support a whole bunch of things. That doesn't mean that Americans actually, all of America supports it. I could find several million people who support, who support no vaccine mandates or vaccine or whatever. It doesn't mean they speak for all Americans. But the the narrative in the media was all of Ukraine is rising up against this guy. All of Ukraine. Even though at the very, very, very most, 50% of Ukraine supported in some way the Maidan movement. And only about a fifth of Ukraine actually participated in this uprising against a democratically elected president. The uprising... Uh, was ultimately successful because of the neo-Nazis. And that's where the neo-Nazis come in. Now, if I may meander for a moment, a few years ago, your listeners might remember there was a, there was a film called Winter on Fire. And it was an Oscar nominated film. It's a foreign documentary of the Maidan uprising. Okay, there was this Ukraine fights for freedom. I think that was the subtitle, Ukraine's fight for freedom. And the interesting thing is if you interview with, the, I, I wrote about this in The Nation, like if you listen to an interview with the uh, director, they actually said that they, uh, you know, they edited out opposing views and they edited out any, uh, you know, problematic issues. The, those problematic issues would be the organized uh, gangs of neo-Nazis that took charge of the Maidan uprising and were in the front ranks and helped instigate the violence and help push toward push the situation towards violence. Okay. Now, of course, the uh, Yanukovych's, uh, you know, the the Yanukovych's people, they also created violence. But the point is, the there were these far right groups who are right in the middle of this, and the media didn't report anything about them. In fact, you know, the, uh, Senator John McCain, and Senator Chris Murphy, and even Joe Biden later, he met with one of the main neo-Nazi leaders in Ukraine. This is a guy who only a year before the New York Times described as an anti-Semite, as, as, as a fascist, okay, uh, as everybody was worried when his, when his party actually gained seats a year before. 
But now that he was part of the uprising and he was on the front lines, he quickly became changed from being an anti-Semite and a neo-Nazi to a uh, freedom fighter. So these, we stood next to these freedom fighters. Real, real and, quick, uh, do, do you remember the name of that character offhand? Of course, yeah. Oleg Tiachnibok. It's a, it's, a, it's a full name, but less than, less than, like a year before that, his party gained seats in the Ukrainian parliament. This was before the uprising. And the EU, the European Union, formally said nobody in Ukraine should work with them. This is very disturbing. The BBC covered it. The New York Times ran two articles about it. Okay? And then suddenly when this guy and others were at the front lines and among the leaders of this uprising, suddenly there was no coverage. The person who was noted as a neo-Nazi and a threat to Ukraine a year before, and not just him, I mean, he represented armed, uh, very well-organized gangs. And none of this was covered. So the narrative that went that Ukraine rose up, all of Ukraine rose up against this ruler. When in reality, it was nowhere near all of Ukraine. It was at most half of Ukraine. And the ruler was a corrupt, but democratically elected ruler. And the leading the charge were neo-Nazis. So that, um, and again, there were millions of people who, who, who really did want to see him overthrown and millions of them were not neo-Nazis. There were students, there were anti-corruption activists. There were, you know, there were people in, in Western Ukraine who didn't have business ties with Russia. So they didn't particularly care if we, you know, if, we, if they switched the economy. So uh, that happened. And in 2014, after a bloody, bloody battle, Yanukovych fled the country with uh, God knows how much money in duffel bags, and he fled to Russia, and this uprising took over. And the first thing they did, the first thing they did bef before the bodies were buried of the people who were killed, the first thing they did was announce that they were going to remove protection from the Russian language, okay? Ukrainian was and is the official language of Ukraine, but Russian had a special protected status. And the first thing these people did, their first order of business was to say that we're going to remove the protection from the Russian language. Uh, I mean, it's basically would be, the, would be as if a government came to power in Canada and said, we will no longer around, allow French to be spoken. Okay. It was like, congratulations, you just made millions of people your enemy. You just told millions of people you want them, you want to, to go, to go leave, to not, you don't want, okay? You're, you're talking about taking away somebody's rightful language, okay? Of course, Russian propaganda loved this. They immediately showcased this, okay? These people, and these people weren't just talking about it in theoretical terms. These people, these are the people who are now in charge. There's now in charge of the country. I was going to add to that really quickly. Uh, one part of your article on this in The Nation that really stood out to me was uh, you noted how the Azov Battalion, which ended up becoming part of Ukraine's armed forces, it's initially formed out of the neo-Nazi gang, the Patriot of Ukraine gang. Yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating because uh, you mentioned that the leader of that gang, uh, Beletsky, once wrote that Ukraine's mission is to uh, quote unquote, lead the white races of the world in a final crusade 
against the Semite-led Untermenschen. And uh, Beletsky, I think, ended up becoming a deputy in Ukraine's parliament. I mean, that's terrifying to me. Uh, he did, but he became something that's far more terrifying is that he turned his gang into, uh, well, now it's a regiment in the Ukrainian armed forces in the National Guard. But what's even more terrifying is um, it became a more of an internet. It, well, we'll get to that in one minute, okay? But speaking of the battalion, so an uprising then happened, a counter uprising happened in Eastern Ukraine, okay? Uh, Ukraine basically did not have an army. Ukraine had, I think, literally like 6,000 people in their army, okay? They had entire warehouses where there was an army bases that was supposed to have tanks and stuff that were just empty because the corrupt presidents over 30 years just quietly sold them off, okay? The only, the, the, the only people in basically in Ukraine who were willing to fight, who were willing to kill and willing to die were these neo-Nazi gangs like the gang that would eventually form the Azov Battalion. So what they wound up doing is forming these several dozen paramilitary battalions, volunteer formations, that then began fighting with uh, the people in Eastern Ukraine and the Russian soldiers that were also helping them. Um, and these battalions, that was, to me, that was the point of no return, the spring of 2014. That was the moment they allowed these people to have guns and to have organized formation. That was the point of no return. Eventually, these, I mean, this happened, if you're a neo-Nazi uh, leader, you couldn't dream of a better thing, okay? Suddenly, you- I, do... I was going to say, someone like Marine Le Pen in- in France could only dream of uh, this kind of thing for her sort of oh falling. You now, and this is what wound up happening with Azov, you now can truly turn Ukraine into a leader against the Semite-led Untermenschen. You have credibility, you have a war, you have real battlefield experience, you have a liberty that Marine Le Pen could only dream of. And so, and Azov is extraordinarily talented. What they started doing, they're, they're extraordinarily well organized and they're very marketing savvy. So what they started doing is after a while, it first, it was a battalion. When they first wrote about it in the New York Times, it was only like 200 people, okay? Now it's it's got the entire organization. We don't even know how much, but we're talking about, now it's a regiment in the Ukrainian National Guard. So we're talking about a Ukraine. This is the country that we're sending weapons and billions in aid to, okay? That has a battalion that, that flies a neo-Nazi symbol that uses, okay, this, in, that uses the same insignia as the people in, Charlotte, in Charlottesville carried and that the New Zealand terrorist who murdered, or who did the mosque shootings also had on his, he had it on his, uh, on his person. When he uh, okay, this is this is who we are giving money to, and we're getting weapons to, and giving training to. Okay. Then these battalions and many others of the, like them, especially in the early year of the war, they be, they committed massive war crimes. Okay. And again, and, and the, I believe Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, have covered uh, yeah, the, the human I, rights abuses, yeah, including torture. Yeah. Oh, torture. Yeah. I mean. And again, 
what the Russian propaganda doesn't doesn't fill in is that the Russian uh, the Russian volunteers and the Russian soldiers and the local on the ground uh, rebels also committed a whole bunch of war crimes. So, you know, but we only focus on one and not the other. So, for example, like here's what happened. Um, in, uh, in the winter of one year, uh, Amnesty International said that uh, two Ukrainian battalions were committing war crimes because they were literally blocking food and, and other supplies to an entire region. They were just preventing, they were, it was basically saying, hey, you know what, everybody there might as well die, okay? They support the rebels, you know, okay? And they were literally blocking food from starving people in the middle of a Ukrainian winter, okay? MSC International said this is war crime. You cannot you de denying supplies to non-combatants to civilians is a war crime. We're talking about you know not just one you know we're not even talking about a village. I mean that would be a war crime too. But I mean we're talking about a big region. Uh, less than six months afterwards, John McCain proudly visited Ukraine and um, visited these but uh, one of the battalion's bases and tweeted about you know and tweeted about the usual fight about again freedom and fight for okay. So somebody who Amnesty International accuses and had evidence. And they were, these battalions were, I mean, they, they proudly said that they were blocking food to civilians. And John McCain went there and took pictures with them and tweeted about how much he, this is the defenders of freedom that we are supporting. And, and at this point, is this at the point where Azov is officially incorporated into Ukraine's National Guard or does that come later? I would have to double check. Azov was incorporated, I think, in October, I believe, of 2015. And this was, I think, in July, June or July uh, that McCain visited. And it wasn't Azov, it was another battalion. Um, there were a whole bunch of them. Um, I mean, including like some real Mad Max type battalions. I mean, people who were just, you know, people, there was one, the Tornado Battalion, which was basically psychopaths let out of prison. Who were for the battalion, and then they turned them loose to just do whatever, like uh, raping children. They just, you know, to the point where they got so bad where even the Ukrainian government had to put them down. Um, so, and eventually, what wound up happening is that, um, but Azov especially started uh, as things with the war kind of froze. Azov uh, started expanding into international relations. It started doing what, uh, what was the stated goal from the beginning, which was to become a hub, to turn Ukraine into a hub of leadership for white supremacy. They started, they recruited a whole bunch of fighters from all over the world, from as far away as Brazil, from Sweden, from France, and from the United States. Okay. Now, um, again, Rebels on the the Russian backed rebels also got a whole bunch of neo Nazis on their side too, um, but again the American media will tell you one but not the other. I want to get into uh, how the Azov Battalion uh, sort of officially denies the neo Nazi connections, but finish with what you're uh, about to say. I mean. Well, I'll just say, they deny it? Of course they deny it. They say we're not Nazis, okay? Uh, or they'll say, uh, you know, oh, there's only a few people and it's their personal beliefs. I think that was a good thing, you know what I mean? But I mean, it's like, 
it it really I don't even want to get into it to be honest because it just I mean like listen David Duke officially says that he's a human rights activist okay uh, I'm not going to spend time explaining do- David Duke's logic for for calling himself a human rights activist this is a battalion of battle hardened neo Nazis with war crimes the reason I mentioned that was because so I, I have uh, the web page of the Atlantic Council open right now and oh, uh, I, I, what's that. I said, fantastic. They, oh, they, uh, they have all sorts of interesting things there. So, go ahead. no, please it, go. It's interesting. Uh, they have a blog from February 24th, uh, 2020, uh, entitled, uh, Why Azov Should Not Be Designated a Foreign Terrorist Organization. Because, uh, you know, uh, former FBI special agent uh, Ali Soufan, uh, as well as Democratic Congressman Max Rose, uh, have raised critical questions about this issue of supporting the Azov Battalion. And uh, one of the lines in this uh, blog that uh, really stood out to me, and, and for people that don't know, the Atlantic Council is, is a major international relations think tank in the US here, but uh, the author writes, it is true, however, that uh, Azov's history is rooted in a volunteer battalion formed by the leadership of a neo-Nazi group called uh, Patriot of Ukraine. Um, but then it says, but while the ideologically inimical nature of Azov's roots is indispensable, it is likewise certain that Azov attempted to depoliticize itself. Uh, the toxic far-right leadership formally left the regiment and found it what would become a far-right party called National Corps. So could, could you push back on that a little if possible? Yeah, the National Corps is Azov, and Azov is the National Corps. I mean, the Azov wound up, Azov wound up expanding. They also formed a street patrol unit that quickly um, distinguished itself into uh, carrying out attacks on the Roma in Ukraine, and v- gladly videotaping them. The uh, the Atlantic Council. This is an apology. They're saying, okay, this is an apology for a Nazi battalion. For a Nazi battalion, okay? I mean, imagine imagine if a battalion in Russia flowed, you know, flew, used actual neo-Nazi insignia as their official thing. Do you think anybody would run an article saying, well, you know what, they might be a little Nazi, but not too much Nazi, okay? It's um, that piece from the Atlantic Council tells you everything you need to know about the Atlantic Council. That piece in the Atlantic Council was published after the FBI arrested four Californian white supremacists for potentially training with Azov, okay? And had a press conference that not nobody covered, okay? So this is the type of people that the Atlantic Council says should not be disbanded, okay? So, I mean, listen, there are people who say we should use Al-Qaeda in Syria. You know, there are people who, who say all sorts of things. This is a battalion with a that human rights groups have said is a neo-Nazi organization that is attracting white supremacists across the world that had people train with them, okay? And uh, the Atlantic uh, Council is saying whatever garbage that they're saying, okay, is apologies and garbage for saying that... Um, we're saying that the, you know Azov should not be this man. I mean, it's it's just that tells you everything you need to know about the Atlantic Council. Okay, there are other people like Anne Applebaum, who uh, I believe she wrote in the Washington Post. 
uh, I may be wrong, but it's the Washington Post or another. I think she, she she writes. She's she's a big name, and she writes yeah. for so many outlets. I yeah. think she's written yeah. for the Atlantic and other yeah, exactly. places. But go on. She was. This was. This was uh, tremendous. She. Uh, um, she wrote, uh, you know, what Ukrainian re- what Ukraine really needs right now is more nationalism. This was like early on 2014-2015 time. Okay, it's just interesting because like a couple of like six weeks afterwards, Newsweek published an article saying Ukrainian nationalist battalions are committing ISIS-style war crimes, like cutting people's heads off. So I mean, that's 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 what the foreign power, you know, um, and this is something that we've done all the time. We America go partners with the most radical people, okay? Uh, we partnered with Osama bin Laden, the founding members of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan because they were fighting against the Soviets and because the radicals are the ones who are always willing, they're willing to die and they're willing to kill. And that's who we partner with. Invariably, we enter the country and we say, who are the biggest psychopaths here? Here, we have weapons for you. That's what, and... That's exactly, I mean, it's, it's just it's just crazy that with Ukraine, it's just so overt. I, I just wanted to read this line from a recent Newsweek article. So there's a Newsweek article from uh, January 5th, 2022, uh, entitled, A Year After 1-6, the January 6th Capitol Breach, Ukraine's War Draws U.S. Far Right to Fight Russia, Train for Violence at Home. Uh, and... You know, we know that uh, a lot of far right elements, I assume the really, really far ends of the right, uh, things like uh, Adam Waffen, are going over to Ukraine to train with the Azov Battalion and pick up uh, this sort of paramilitary tactics and also to network internationally with other I mean, white they, supremacists. Yeah, go, go they, don't have to pick up, they don't have to pick up tactics in a field, in a training field. They get, they get actual war training in an actual war. So you cannot get better training skills than that. I wanted to read a quote from Evelyn Farkas in that article, which really is what set me off to talk about this because I was really disturbed by what she said. So Farkas, for people that don't know, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. She served in in the US here uh, in that capacity. And she basically said when asked about this issue in Newsweek, she said, they have right now existential issues to deal with, and the far right groups are helping defend Ukraine. So at this moment in time, the Ukrainian government needs all the help they can get from its citizens, regardless of their ideology. And when I read that, I was just, I was flabbergasted because I'm thinking to myself, you're basically she saying... The, she said the quiet part out loud. Well, you're, she's basically saying, oh, Nazi schmazi, Nazi schmazi, yeah. who cares? That's exactly what she... Yeah, I mean, that's what it says. Like, that's... I mean, yeah, they may be not. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing the, the messages. Yeah, they may be Nazis, but hey, they're fighting Russia, you know? I mean, and that's the... Um, Listen, that's that's the you know it's it's the whole you know the, they may be bastards but they're our bastards. That's that's the the core tenant of U.S. foreign uh, policy establishment, and it's just it's just so amazing though because this is uh, I mean we're talking about how for the how for the past five years we've been talking about nothing but Nazi Nazi Nazi. A guy with a swastika in the middle of Idaho uh, gets national coverage. 
you know, and we should keep an eye on this, but it's just amazing how we simultaneously are saying how this is such a, this is so terrible and have no problem doing this in Ukraine. And if anybody says anything about Ukraine, they're saying, oh, that's just Russian propaganda. Okay. And I believe just to be fully fair to her, I believe Farkas uh, did end up with, uh, she did, she did uh, mumble out some sort of a little tiny disclaimer at the end to just kind of cover herself. I'm trying to look for it here now. So yeah, this notion is basically like, uh, yeah, they're fighting Russia. That's, you know, that's the important part, you know? I, I think uh, one of the lines she had was, and we have to make sure that we have adequate measures on the books to address Americans who might consider undertaking extremist activities. And perhaps some of the laws that we have don't deter them effectively from doing so. And then she says, uh, we need to address that as well. Um, I don't know if that's what yeah. you're referring to with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is, I mean, and listen, just, just take a moment and, and understand of this, okay? This is the, I mean, we live in a country where like somebody sprays a swastika and we get universal condemnations of this is a point, okay? And here is somebody saying, you know, listen, these these Nazis in Ukraine, Ukraine, they're fighting Russia, they're fighting for the freedom, you know? But, you know, of course, extremist ideas are bad, okay? I mean, the, that uh, that kind of says a lot right there. And, so um, I, I was going to say ahead. real real quickly in that regard, you, you mentioned the New Zealand shooter, Brandon Tarrant. I mean, he he basically said or claimed that he had went to Ukraine. And, and of course, you mentioned that he had the insignias on him and whatnot. So what's interesting to me is if you have these elements of the far right in the U.S. going over to Ukraine uh, to train with these battalions, you know, I, maybe this sounds alarmist, but I'm thinking that in a few years time, you could get a form of blowback out of this. Like the, these are people that are getting training and I, I could see them pulling off some kind of Timothy McVeigh thing with that kind of training. Is that overly alarmist of me to think this could end up being a really bad situation? No, I, I don't think it's, I mean, I, I think that the whole idea of this setup is exactly that. I mean, it's, and, and here's what's going to wind up happening, okay? Just like suddenly, like just, there's a perfectly full connection. And this is what Ali Sufan, the, uh, you know, the former, he's the head FBI agent who tried to stop the 9-11 attacks, okay? And this is why, you know, he and his center, I mean, you could not get more legitimate on that. And he and his team, um, you know, Colin Clark and the other people, Max, Con former Congressman Max Rose, who also co-authored his life. I mean, they, they, the parallels between Islamic terrorism and this are so, there's so many of them. And I mean, basically this is exactly just like on September 11th, suddenly, okay, a chain of events that started in the 1980s that wound up with us create, helping create Al-Qaeda and okay, wound up, we wound up getting blowback. Then suddenly people started writing a whole bunch of books after 3,000 people were dead. They started writing a whole bunch of books and be like, oh, okay, so this somehow happened, blah, 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 blah. So what's going to wind up happening, unfortunately, okay, one of these people are going to come back. They're going to shoot people up. They're going to do some sort of terrorist act. And then suddenly newspapers are going to start putting out and be like, how did this possibly happen? And nobody's going to make that clear line of like, it happened because we helped it happen. It happened because we built these people. We trained them, we gave them weapons, we set them loose. And 
it's just and and it's not just in America. I mean, they are attracting people from all over the world, you know. And so are the Russian-backed rebels. Okay, the problem is everybody's talking about the Russian-backed rebels, and uh, we actually can't do anything right now about to immediately stop the Russian-backed rebels. We can do something about stopping training and supplying weapons and supplying money to these people. You know, it's it's not a question that people always say, oh, well, Russia, 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 you know. Um, Michael McFall, who's a former ambassador on Obama to Russia, I remember he was, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I mean, he was asked about on Twitter, he was asked about, you know, what about, you know, as Ukrainian Nazis? You know, are you concerned about that? And he gave, a pretty interesting answer. He said, you know, I'm concerned about Nazis, you know, whether in America or in Russia or in Ukraine, okay? And that was kind of like a whole, like all Nazis matter, okay? But the question is like, there's only one group of these Nazis uh, except America that we actually have control over and that's the ones in Ukraine. So, you know, when people say, oh, well, Russia has Nazis too. I mean, that, that makes no sense. That's like a fire department saying, you know, are you concerned about the fire happening right in your town? Well, I'm concerned about all fires, whether in California or Australia. That's not the actual issue. The issue is, are you going to handle the fire in your own town? And this is something, and by the way, these people, and just to, to make it absolutely clear, these people, the neo-Nazis in Ukraine, they are not helping Ukraine. They're not helping Ukraine be a democracy. They're not helping Ukraine thrive. In fact, a lot of their values are very much like Russian ones, like Russian nationalist ones. It's just, you know, they're just as homophobic. They're just against the Roma. They're just have the same type of mindset, really, that the, the, the other people, except that they kill each other. But I mean, this is not, if you want to, I want to see Ukraine flourish. I want to see Ukraine shed the communist legacy. I want to see Ukraine be a democracy. Having a neo-Nazi battalion that basically has a veto by violence that can just put people on the street and reject things from the legitimate government, that is not democracy. That's not helping Ukraine advance. And this is also, and again, these people are a tiny fraction, but the problem, the problem is they're a tiny fraction of people who have a whole lot of guns and who are able to use them. And so far they appear to be, it's a tail wagging the dog. Real quick, in that regard, th there's also actual ties to government. I mean, even Radio Free Europe, which is the United States uh, you know, outlet, uh, says in, on February 13th, 2019, Ukrainian police declare admiration for Nazi collaborators. And you've also talked about figures like um, a, a Speaker of Parliament, Andriy Perubi. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing yeah, the name yeah, right. Perubi. Yeah, he is a fascinating, okay, he basically helped create Azov. He was one of the two, him and Oleg Tyachnibok, who I mentioned earlier, first created the, the main neo-Nazi party of Ukraine all the way back in the 1990s, okay? And then Perubi, in fact, um, my very first article ever, I published in the Boston Globe in March, of 2013. That very same day, Eugene Robinson in the Washington Post also published an article warning of the dark side of Ukraine. It's like one of the only times that somebody ever warned about this. And Eugene Robinson 
This is, I mean, this is not a Russian propagandist. This is a very extraordinarily established columnist for the Washington Post, an MSNBC commentator, just, or CNN, I think MSNBC. Um, very legitimate, you can't get more legitimate than that. And he warned about, he's like, you know, this Andrei Peruby, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was a neo-Nazi party co-founder. So this person who, and in years before, you could go back and you could see articles in the British media about how like neo-Nazi leader Andrei Peruby said, blah, 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 okay? Suddenly he became the speaker of parliament. This is like the third most, you know, this is the equivalent of the speaker of the house of representatives in America, okay? And he came to, he came to America several times, at least two trips he made, met with members of Congress, uh, made presentations on the front lines of freedom with Andrei Peruby, hosted by the Atlantic Council, okay? So this neo-Nazi, this man who founded and ran neo-Nazi organizations, okay, on the front lines of freedom, okay? Uh, that was the event that the Atlantic Council hosted with him. Uh, he came, he met with American members of Congress, senators, he met with think tanks, but no problem, as if, as if he was born in 2013, as if he, he fell from the moon, fully formed as a fighter for democracy. And this is in the middle of a country that is watching, that, that has anti-Semitism rising and that nobody, the only person who ever spoke out against this is a member of the Scottish parliament when Peru became to, to the UK. I remember, uh, I remember there was a uh, Neil something. He was, he's, he spoke out and he was like, why are we hosting this neo-Nazi? And the Russian embassy uh, immediately started attacking him saying, you're repeating Russian propaganda. Even though, even though the, the British media itself used to admit that this guy was a neo-Nazi. He became, overnight, he became a freedom fighter because he's now our, you know, he's a, he's a freedom fighter. And he does fight for a certain type of freedom, uh, you know, the same type of freedom that, fascists fight for the freedom for the white man and i was gonna say i mean what's what's really horrifying is i think in 2015 uh ukrainian parliament basically passed legislation uh, that, that amounts to the the state sanctioned glorification of groups uh like the ukrainian insurgent army and i mean if people don't understand why that's so you know frightening i mean the upa slaughtered thousands of Jews and I think 70 to 100,000 Poles Absolutely. of their own volition. I mean, this is, you know, uh, it, it's whitewashing. It's not, it's instant. I mean, it's, and it's painful. I mean, it's so, so, so painful. It's, I mean, imagine just the sacrifice that this country, which lost millions in fighting World War II, okay? And then now, the descendants of those of the few tiny fraction that fought for the Nazis now get to put monuments to the not to their Nazi heroes all over the country, including in Eastern Ukraine. But I mean, that is anathema. Okay. I mean, that is, I'm trying to come up with an analogy that's painful enough, but I can't because I mean, in America, America lost 420,000 people in World War II. That's a, that's a drop in the bucket compared to how many died everywhere, where everybody, everybody in Ukraine has family members who were killed, including in the Holocaust. And I mean, it's just, this is the losers, the monsters from a long time ago, their descendants are now putting their statues on there and they're raising an entire generation. That's the really scary part because we're saying, you know, in a little, in a little time, 
if things keep going this way, you're going to have an entire generation of Ukrainians a race to worship these people as heroes. And one last is thing there? I, go, go on. Ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, one uh, an example of blowback of, of ramifications of this. Um, it's not just an issue in Ukraine. So here's, I mean, I, I cover a lot of uh, Holocaust revisionism, World War II revisionism. So here's this thing. Ukraine started banning books by authors, established Western authors, okay? Uh, Anthony Beaver, uh, who is a multi, I mean, a super, super historian in from the UK, okay? Multiple award wings. He's actually interested because he got his books banned in Ukraine and in Russia. He got his book banned in a place in Russia because he talked about the uh, the Red Army raping women in Europe. And he got his book banned in Ukraine by this new Ukrainian government because it has a single paragraph, a single paragraph about a well-backed up case of Ukrainian uh, of a Ukrainian group killing 90 infants. Okay. And now here's and Ukraine banned several Andrews Rydell, who ironically is a Swedish. Uh, I covered him. He's a Swedish author who ironically wrote a book about Nazis stealing books. Uh, his book on that was banned in Ukraine. Um, what you wind up happening then? What, and here's what winds up happening. Then that encourages Poland. Poland starts banning books and banning historians. Lithuania doesn't want to be left behind. Lithuania starts doing that. What you wind up happening is you want, this goes beyond Ukraine. What winds up happening is, again, this atmosphere returning to the world where books get banned, okay? That is a very, very scary sign, and it spreads. And the message that we send as America is that we're backing this up. We're okay with this because um, Ukraine is an American project. Ukraine has been an American project since the beginning of this Maidan uprising. So what we tolerate there sends a message to the rest of the world. We are okay with this because we're gonna keep giving them billions of dollars and we're not gonna say anything. The last thing I'll just say, Anthony Blinken, who talks about being the stepson of a Holocaust survivor and how this secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, and how this affected him so much, how this made, you know, his, his stepfather was a Holocaust survivor. Anthony Blinken flew into Kiev a week after they had a march honoring a Waffen-SS division in the middle of Kiev, honoring an SS, a Waffen-SS division. Um, the SS was the military wing of the Nazi party. They are, this is the organization primarily responsible for the Holocaust, among other war crimes. This particular division distinguished itself doing things like um, the Huda Pinata massacre, in which they uh, surrounded a Polish village and uh, burned 500 to 1,000 Poles alive. Okay, this is what these people did. One of them managed to, a bunch of them managed to escape to America, but one in particular, I remember there was, you know how every time you hear stories about these old Nazis getting caught and they're trying to deport them. Okay, the last few times this happened, there was Ukrainian, uh, like not the last time, but the previous one. It was, it was Ukrainian who, who, were, who committed these war crimes and who were living in America. So this is, this is what the celebration was. This is a division that committed war crimes Anthony Blinken flies into Kiev, the stepson of a Holocaust survivor, this guy who was so affected by the Holocaust and who has the deepest respect, Anthony Blinken said nothing about a neo-Nazi march that was so bad that even the German ambassador to Ukraine and the Israeli ambassador to Ukraine were forced to condemn it. 
So before we close out here, I just had a few odds and ends I wanted to mention. Uh, first, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I wanted to make mention of uh, a figure by the name of uh, Eduard Dolinsky. I believe he is the Ukrainian Jewish Committee Director General. He wrote recently about Ukrainian Nazis on, on a Telegram channel discussing how they would try to stop him in his fight against anti-Semitism. And he said that one subscriber offers to raise funds and to hire a brave man with a good optical rifle to kill me. Uh, my murder will be an example for others. They'll have a peace and will be able to develop the state they want. Uh, he's also been written about in Haaretz, Meet the Lonely Ukrainian Jew, Fighting His Country's New Fondness for Nazis. So this is already having very yep. real impacts in Ukraine. Uh, there's violence uh, occurring against um, well, Ukrainian it, Jews. Well, there's no violence against Ukrainian Jews happening yet. Uh, there is, there is a, I mean, Delinsky's having a threat of it, okay? Uh, yeah, so, I, I should have clarified there. I guess it's uh, the, the threat of violence, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so far they have not gone after Jews as far as like physical violence. Um, they There have been a set of horrific pogroms against the Roma in Ukraine. Uh, just so I hate using this word because uh, they don't, but unfortunately most Americans know them as gypsies. It's a word that they do, not, it's, it's, they view it as a slur, so... Uh, it's just, it's very, very hard because most Americans don't know what the word Roma means, okay? But it's just, it's just people who are the most vulnerable people imaginable in Europe, okay? They're the ones who, I mean, Europe just utterly uh, disregards their rights. They're the most, uh, and they were also killed in the Holocaust in droves. And- um, Well, they, they, they've been targeted in so many places. Oh, I mean, even- um, the first ones. The first a, a, a lot of my family is- uh, Italian. And I remember uh, a few years ago when uh, Berlusconi was in power when I was in uh, university, you know, uh, Roma were treated like garbage oh in God, Italy. Yeah. They've always been targeted in a very sad way. Yes. And they're, and they're the canary in the coal mine, you know, so the Roma, um, you know, and they, they had pogroms from around the country, including uh, a, a couple of which people died. Um, at least one I know there was uh, stabbings, uh, um, there was a just video, and they shot videos of doing this. They shot they shot videos of them gleefully uh, persecuting these people, and they put them up on Facebook. I mean, it's um, but the violence, you know, the violence against Delinsky, the threat of violence there is. I think he's an extraordinarily brave man. I think he's. I I, I know him. Uh, I communicate with him. He's helped me with my research. I just um, he's written an op-ed in the New York Times about this. And you know what, Edward Delinsky was a supporter of the Maidan uprising, okay? Edward Dolinsky wanted Yanukovych in the very beginning to go. Edward Dolinsky is the last thing that a Russian puppet would be, okay? Edward Dolinsky is an example of somebody who's doing the right thing and who wants to have a democratic Ukraine, okay? And those are the, pe you know, those are the people we should be working with, people like them, people, people who are actually democrat you know, democratic-oriented, okay? And I mean, unfortunately, what winds up happening is we wind up working with um, with a very much other type, and we wind up painting them as freedom fighters, not neo-Nazis. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to clarify, the only reason I, I used the term violence there was because for me, uh, the, the threat of intimidation is its own form of, I, I think, non-physical violence. So I, I'm, I'm glad you that we were able to clarify that. 
Also, you, you have a recent article from January 27th, 2022, entitled Investigation, Some 1,500 Statues and Streets Honor Nazis Around the World, Including in Germany and the U.S. Uh, that's in the Jewish Forward. Uh, could you briefly maybe tell my audience a little bit about that? Yeah, I came to it actually through covering neo-Nazis. I would cover the far right in Ukraine, and I would cover the far right in other places like uh, Slovakia. And I happened to notice this interesting pattern that so many times when you would have a far right rally or a far right networking event, bringing various neo-Nazis from around the, uh, Europe together, it would be based around veneration of a World War II collaborator. So these people were using, just like the Charlottesville uh, neo-Nazis used Robert E. Lee and centered around the Robert E. Lee statue to have their movement. It's happening in Europe, except in a much scarier way. So these people are putting up statues, they're putting up monuments, they're putting up, they're renaming streets after uh, people who just were just perpetrators of the Holocaust, uh, it also is happening in Germany. In Germany and Austria, it's a little bit different. In Germany and Austria, it's, um, it's uh, war criminals who used, uh, I mean, who murdered tens of thousands of people in concentration camps through death by labor, okay? People who were war profiteers, people who were members of the SS, people who, people who used slave labor from concentration camps and so who armed the Nazis, and after the war, they took their money and they poured it into foundations, charitable foundations, and they uh, transformed themselves from war criminals to uh, philanthropists and benefactors. And so you now have college, you know, you have um, a university in Bremen that has a college named for Alfred Krupp, who uh, was convicted in Nuremberg, whose crime was bad enough to uh, warrant its own separate tribunal in Nuremberg. Um, who worked 30,000 people to death in Auschwitz and who then came out. Now he rebranded himself. And now there's a, the Alfred Krupp, uh, Krupp Foundation now has a college in, 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 that's part of a university in Bremen. And the, the last thing I'll tell you is the interesting part is that these monuments are also in America and they have been put up by diasporas, by essentially people who fled uh, neo-Nazi collaborators and um, their families who fled to America, who rebranded themselves as uh, victims of the Soviet Union, and who then uh, set about and build monuments to themselves. So we have monuments to people who, who, I mean, who fought. I mean, Tom Hanks had to run around collecting money for a monument to World War II veterans, okay? And for decades before that, we didn't have a monument to World War II veterans, but we had monuments to Nazi collaborators. In Chicago, in New Jersey, in New York, in Wisconsin. And you see this happen in Canada, actually. There was a big outcry about this, especially Canada has a very uh, influential Ukrainian diaspora, where there was uh, a graffiti on a monument to the SS Galichina, the same uh, uh, Waffen-SS division that I mentioned before. And the police uh, originally said that the vandalism on the monument was a hate crime. In other words, the SS were the victims, the, 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 the hate crime victims here. So this is basically, the one thing that this says a lot is that the war in Ukraine right now is a continuation of a war that lasts, that stretches back over a hundred years. 
And this is just basically the most true. It's a war that's been fought between breaks. It's a war that's been fought quietly in the uh, suburban neighborhoods and classrooms in America and Canada and around the world. And it's, uh, and it's a war that's unfortunately is now taking a lot of lives of just everyday people in Eastern Ukraine who are being killed by both sides, by both the, the, the Russian-backed rebels and the American-backed Kiev government. So that's a good segue in, into the sort of final note I wanted to end on. And I, I know I've kept you long and I appreciate your oh, for staying with book. me here. We talk about the American backing of the Azov Battalion. In a lot of ways, this isn't necessarily entirely new, though, in the sense that you wrote on CNN uh, on February 24th, 2021, an opinion piece entitled, It's Time to Confront the Dark Postscript to America's Role in Defeating the Nazis. And uh, you open that by talking about uh, the U.S. deportation of uh, Friedrich Karl Berger, an ex-Nazi concentration camp guard. Uh, Attorney General Monty Wilkinson lauded those efforts of law enforcement involved in the process of that deportation uh, as affirming that America isn't a safe haven for those who participated in Nazi crimes. And you emphatically respond to that by saying, except that it has been. Now, what's interesting is I think a lot of people know about uh, for example, things like Operation Paperclip, uh, bringing in Nazi scientists. And a lot of people will try to make excuses for that, saying, oh, well, von Braun wasn't you know, really a, a Nazi. But it doesn't even just end at Paperclip. Uh, there were also other operations, like uh, Operation Bloodstone, which was the, the CIA uh, seeking out Nazis and collaborators living in Soviet-controlled areas uh, to work undercover for U.S. intelligence inside of the Soviet Union, Latin America, and Canada, as well as domestically within the United States. Uh, and many of those uh, who were hired as part of Bloodstone were high-ranking Nazi intelligence agent agents who had committed war crimes. Uh, so you have that, you have Operation Paperclip. I was wondering if you could comment on the sort of history of this, because it's very sordid. And I think even with Paperclip, people have made way too many excuses for it. Yeah, the... Um... I'm actually, I'm very pleased to say after uh, the recent uh, forward investigation was published uh, a, a couple of days before that, um, NASA removed, uh, removed the bust of uh, Von Braun. Um, not that, not that, I'm sorry, the US Space and Rocket Center, which is a partner with the NASA and affiliate of the Smithsonian. Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest question to me is, I mean, like the Von Braun is even the more fascinating thing because Every argument with him begins with the assumption, the baseline where we're starting from, is that he's owed a plaque, is that he's owed a building named after him, okay? And nobody says the fact that it's like, yeah, he helped America, yeah, he did, and his reward was not being hanged. That's a pretty damn great reward. He got to live. I mean, the slogan was, with these, when they were deciding to what to do with these Nazi scientists, was hang them or hire them. Okay, we went for the third choice, which is make them heroes. Okay, he got to live, he got to die surrounded by friends and loved ones while the, the, he killed 10,000 people using uh, who, slaves who built, his, who built his rockets. That's, that's not even getting into the people, the rockets who he built, he, he killed. Okay, this is a man who, you know, and the, the people who he murdered using his rockets and who never really, he never apologized for it. He just kind of didn't want to talk about it. Um, the, the well, people... I, I think I think what von Braun would say uh, while he was alive was, well, I didn't I didn't I didn't have a choice. Uh, and I, I just I don't think that's uh, an acceptable answer. 
Yeah. Well, it's he he didn't even really talk about it that much, but it's like, listen, Von Brown got his life. Von Brown got to not he was not hanged. He was not put in prison. He was in fact given the dream of any scientist possible. He got unlimited funds to pursue what he wanted, and an entire nation grateful of making him a hero for it. He got to he got to hang out with presidents, he got to be a media darling, and he got to die surrounded by friends and family. His victims don't even have a tombstone because their bodies were burned and thrown out like trash at the concentration camp. So in that uh, equation, one might say that a plaque for Von Braun may be a little bit too much, that in fact, he got a whole lot of things. And that actually what would be really good is that to use his fame to maybe just shed a little decency and shed a little light on the people who helped him get to that fame by dying for him, by being killed by his actions. And it's it's just it's unfortunate. Like the University of Alabama just has, uh, you know, they have all uh, a Von Brown Research Hall. And if you go on their website, for example, University of Alabama, a state school, a state school, you just hear about Von Brown, and it gives you the impression again that he fell from the sky. That Von Braun was born in 1945, uh, fully formed, and came out of nowhere. And it's just also, and it's a question of it's like, you know, when they say people who are talking about monuments, you know, people, you know, that's erasing history. That's not erasing history. Erasing history is pretending that Von Braun never was a Nazi, that he just came to America out of nowhere. As if we really wished, and a fairy came and waved her magic wand, and Von Braun popped up and started building rockets for us. You know, that's erasing history. What the University of Alabama is doing by not mentioning anything about his past, that's erasing history. Pointing out that he was a Nazi who used concentration camp slaves, that is history. That's putting things into context. That's saying, you know what? Sometimes people do horrible things, but who also wind up doing incredible things of getting us to the moon. That is history. That is life. That is, that's addressing it fully. Uh, pretending that none of these things happened and pretending that we didn't use other Nazis. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's what Disney does. So, I mean, that's, that's not reality. And uh, these things always wind up coming back and coming back in the news and, and sooner or later, they wind up coming back to us. Is it fair, the connection I made there saying that, you know, that things like paperclip or, or bloodstone and these other operations it's not that much different from what we are doing now, supporting battalions like that of Azov. Of course. Azov, listen, if Azov was a battalion in New Zealand, if Azov was a group of neo-Nazis in New Zealand, we would be condemning them. We would be putting them on lists to never deal with. We would be putting pressure on the New Zealand government to do something about them, okay? The reason why we are instead supporting them, we're covering them up and we're attacking anybody who mentions them, like my friend and mentor, Steve Cohen, who was a professor uh, of Russian, uh, a, a, an eminent scholar of Russia in the Soviet Union, who, would just, who, was, who was attacked viciously for, just for mentioning the fact that Ukraine is using Nazis. Uh, I, I, I uh, recently spoke to uh, uh, the late Stephen Cohen's wife, Katrina, and I'm always horrified to see the ways in which uh, people attack her or they'll attack the Nation magazine where, where she works, uh, saying, oh, it's you're, you're just a, a Putin rag, you're controlled by Putin or the Kremlin. It's utterly uh, 
just contemptible to me. Well, it's 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 as Steve would point out, who's the patriot? Who's the person? Who's the person who's the who's the person who's a patriot? The person who is trying to stop America from being in league with these horrible groups that can come back and hurt us. Or the people that are saying, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. You know, they may be neo-Nazis, but hey, you know, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, that's, anytime you hear somebody say, like the one takeaway, anytime you hear somebody say Russian propaganda, whatever, the, just remember, anything negative about America fits into Russian propaganda. So according to that logic, we should not speak about anything bad. So neo-Nazis are bad in Ukraine. We shouldn't speak about them. Anybody who speaks about them is helping the Kremlin. Racism is is helping the Kremlin. We shouldn't speak about that. But you know, but but racism does exist, and 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 neo Nazis in Ukraine do exist. And addressing them is not carrying water for the Kremlin. Addressing them is doing the responsible thing, not just as an American, but also the responsible thing for Ukraine. Because you know what, Ukraine cannot have a democratic future when it has this this core group of people who might not represent the population, but they don't need to because they have a whole lot of guns. So closing out here, I guess for me, the bottom line is, I think that America has to reckon with a very dark past of supporting um, you know, Nazis and, and neo-Nazis and, and groups like the Azov Battalion. And also I think that if we care about uh, fighting the far right domestically, we have to understand that the far right is a global phenomena. Absolutely. And that there is networking transnationally no between thing. these groups. There's no such thing. I wrote about this in one of my other CNN pieces. There's no such thing as lone wolves. Okay. They don't see themselves as lone wolves. They see themselves as fighters. All these lone wolf terrorists, whatever we call, they see themselves as part of a global movement. Okay, in the last struggle for the white race, the last end of the white race, a victory in Ukraine is a victory everywhere else for them. A victory in America is a victory anywhere else for them. There's no, you cannot fight. The, there's no such thing that's really domestic. It's just a local version of the global white supremacists. Okay, so these people are inspired by each other and it's a hell of an inspirational story to have the success of neo-Nazis in Ukraine, to have an entire battalion that is able to be uh, uh, that is able to exist in a European nation with no problem and with no with everybody seemingly being fine about it, you know, you think that like you know uh, if any other if Russia had a neo Nazi battalion, I'm pretty sure that everybody Rachel Maddow would be talking about it. Everybody else would be talking. If Russia had a neo Nazi battalion in its armed forces, officially flying neo Nazi insignia, I mean, I think that's uh, I think that would be everybody would be talking about. It. But because it's Ukraine, we suddenly we ignore. And because there's no excuse for ignoring this, because really uh, anything else, the moment you push Evelyn Farkas or the Atlantic Council or anybody or any of these people, the only thing they will say back in response is you're carrying water for the Kremlin. Okay, you're a Russian agent, you're a dupe for the Kremlin. Because you know what? Because otherwise they have to finish the sentence, supplying neo-Nazis with weapons is a good idea because, and they cannot finish that sentence. So the only thing they can do is they can attack you for saying you're a Kremlin agent. But we are supplying neo-Nazis and we're making them strong. And that is making that is presenting a danger to uh, anti, anti-white supremacy efforts. Assuming that I may have listeners that like 
an Evelyn Farkas or uh, like an Atlantic Council have blinders. Maybe they have uh, read a lot of news articles saying, oh, don't don't talk about this Azov Italian stuff or, or the far right in the Ukraine. What do you want to say to those people that have had blinders on? Hopefully uh, this conversation has allowed uh, some people like that to, you know, maybe come to a different way of thinking about this. Uh, but how do you approach people who may uh, be worried about talking about this or have, have you had any success in uh, just talking to people even on like an individual basis about this issue and maybe having people come around on it the people in our foreign policy and journalistic establishment will not come around okay because their jobs depend on it and I, I forgot who said it but it's very very it's nearly impossible to convince somebody to, to understand something but their job depends on not understanding it okay um Anytime you talk to them about it, it's, they just come up with excuses, okay? It's, well, Russia has Nazis too, as if that has anything to do with anything, you know? And it's always the, and, and the problem is I've kind of, after a while, I, I hate to say it, but I've kind of lost patience with it because it's like, even when these people learn lessons, like in Iraq or Afghanistan, things like that, A, they never really learn them because they say, oh, next time it'll be different, okay? And B, the cost of their lessons is people's lives. Their lessons are paid for in blood. And that's a little, you know, and that's a little too much. I mean, if you think about it, every single person who was involved with helping support Al-Qaeda, helping support headquarters in Iraq, help, there's every person, the US foreign policy study is the only place where enabling war crimes goes in your resume as experience. So I really, you know, what winds up happening is the most that you can get these people to concede is you can get them to say, well, you know, there is such a problem, you know, and, and we, we could cover this in this article or put it to be sure, you know, extremist behavior is bad. But I mean, really, and here's the thing, because if you say this, if you fully say this, good luck getting a job in the American foreign policy establishment. Good luck getting a permanent job in the American media. You won't. Because your stories won't get because you because they don't want to hear this, okay? And that's just uh, so. But then, what, what do you say to people who will say, "Well, you've been published in in bigger outlets." <laughs> I'm published because I'm usually a, a cover your cover your butt piece. So what winds up happening is uh, an outlet will run. 500 pieces about how Ukraine is fighting for freedom and needs to get weapons and everything. And one tiny little squeak uh, article about, hey, by the way, Ukraine does have neo-Nazis, okay? A lot of times I'm that article that winds up getting published so they can say, hey, listen, we published this, okay? But the, one, the problem is they'll publish one article and they'll publish, a, you know, and they'll, a lot, and a lot of the times I don't get published. I mean, if you if you think that what I get published is impressive, you should see the list of things, articles I did not get published. Now that is impressive. Um, I did not get a whole lot published in a lot of places about this because it's, I have to basically wait until the situation gets a little bit that loosens, which scarily enough is exactly how people dealt with censorship in the Soviet Union. They had to wait until there was a little bit of a weakening of censorship before they say something. You know, so the point is, I'm one person and I'm just, I'm just a guy. Okay. It's, we need, you know, we need to be able to have people and unfortunately everyday Americans, they don't, they would rather, you know, they, they, you know, like 
I'll just put it this way. I mean, like we just had this horrific disaster in Afghanistan where $2 trillion were thrown out the window, okay? And lives were lost, God knows how many lives, and it went to the Taliban. Have you, in, in any normal country, I mean, maybe you're asking for too much, but in any normal country, people would say, why don't we have a commission and everybody who is responsible for this has to answer for it. And maybe, you know, maybe like, why does it every Amer why does every major media organization not have an investigation of how they didn't understand that Afghanistan was going to collapse completely? If we well, didn't not not only that, but I mean, to me, and I, I've even spoken to like you know libertarian anti-war types who will say you know, and, and these are people that don't like government spending, but they'll they'll say to me you know if we were to spend money on anything, it, it should be Afghanistan right now after what we've done. To yeah. Afghanistan, and yet, what are we doing? I mean, the the country is starving, and we're not providing yeah. any assistance. And all those weapons to Afghanistan aren't going to aren't going to the mil, the U.S. military industrial complex does not want those weapons to stay in warehouses. So uh, conveniently, there are things happening in Ukraine, which is going to allow those weapons to go to freedom fighters in Ukraine as opposed to freedom fighters in Afghanistan. But I mean, it's. In any normal country, we would have a reckoning. We would have, and I'm not talking about having like, but it's just people who presided over screw-ups so bad and that they're so costly, I mean, $2 trillion. So, okay, the normal question would be, why haven't the media predicted this? Where were they? Why haven't members of the United States government said this? Afghanistan didn't just collapse, okay? It's not like everything was going fine and then suddenly something went horribly wrong. For two decades, we put blood and money into this, okay? And now we're going to keep trusting the same experts who told us everything is good in Afghanistan. We're going to keep trusting them to keep using money, blood. We're going to keep trusting them to run articles. We're going to keep trusting them to run op-eds. I mean, it's amazing. It's the only place. It's the only place in the world where just like, I mean, I, I, you know, I wrote once, you know, love, you know, you say love means never having to say you're sorry. Love has nothing on our foreign policy establishment, okay? We're in foreign policy where you screw up and cost lives and money and get rewarded for it. Right. I, I always tell people, I, I don't know why people to this day still take John Bolton seriously. <laughs> or something, uh, yeah. I mean, and it's not just a history of getting something wrong. Everybody gets something wrong, okay? Like, you know what I mean? Or, or why Dick Cheney suddenly, uh, you know, uh, a, a figure of representative for democracy, you know? But I mean, just unfortunately you say, I don't, that's a great question. Nobody ever asked me what I would say to the Atlantic Council people, type people, the Evelyn Park. I don't know because I don't think, I don't know. I don't, because if you can't respond, if you, I mean, if you can't see the reality and if you don't, if, if you can't see this and then either you don't want to see it or, or, this, or maybe those blinders are stuck, I don't know. But to be honest, it's just at this point, does it, does it really, I mean, I'm from Eastern Ukraine. I mean, the, these people are getting killed. Do you think these people on the ground really care whether Evelyn Farkas has a disclaimer here or, or you know, uh, or, or the Atlantic Council? Do you, think, do you think these people care, these people who are getting killed? They don't care. It, it doesn't make it, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the learning curve of these people, and I mean, you know, and they might put disclaimers like Farkas did. Uh, you know, and I'm sure the Atlantic Council article has some sort of a disclaimer saying that, by the way, Nazis are bad. But I mean, in the end, you wind up saying, you know what, well, you know, 
they shouldn't be disbanded or, you know, they are helping Ukraine. And, and that winds up just, I mean, what message does that send? I, I really don't know what to say to somebody who says that message. I, I always used to say when I first started this show three years ago, I would end almost every episode saying, you know, I want to end on a positive note. Uh, is there any glimmer of, of, of hope, though, with, with any of this? Because this is, this is really dark territory. And increasingly, I, I feel a lot of despair when talking about these topics, because it seems like uh, any efforts to talk about what we're talking about get stonewalled. Uh, so is there any glimmer of, of a possibility of reckoning? I will give you two. And it's just reckoning, it's just not screwing up in the future. I'll even take that, you know, but I'll give you two. One is Ukraine. They say Ukraine became uh, independent, okay, a long time ago. But I think in many ways, uh, Ukraine became independent in around 2014 because it's the first time that the country began having serious volunteer organizations. And I don't mean volunteer Nazi battalions. I mean volunteers like supplying aid. For the longest time, the country was held in the grip of the post-communist system where people just didn't have trust. Where the idea of like putting, you know, collecting money, of course, nobody would give you money. You would never spend in a charitable or whatever. Okay. So it's a very horrible price, but seeing people, seeing these civic organizations come out and seeing and seeing people like Edward Delinsky speaking out about anti-Semitism and all of this, you know, it's 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 been a, a horrible price, but this that is the real Ukraine, you know, that is the that is the type of democracy we should be fulfilling, you know. So that's that's one the Ukraine end. On the American end is um, I think the fact is that shows like yours and others uh, and Substack that are actually starting to gain popularity. I think for the first time in a very, I think for the first time ever, uh, there are channels that are not being controlled and that have a wide audience. I think that is, I mean. Steve Cohen used to tell me, you know, he's like, you know, I, I got blacklisted from from every place, but you know what? I found my outlet with other with other independent stations, you know. And this is a man who used to be the number one, the CBS analyst who told the entire country about what to think about the Soviet Union at a time when we had when we came close to nuclear war, and he started getting blacklisted. So, I think the fact is, I mean, like we are not just speaking to each other. We're speaking to people who, who are going to listen to you. And we have the ability to do that. And we have the ability to provide proof. And we have the, you know, um, we have the ability to tell others. We have people who are no longer controlled by uh, the mainstream media who, who can, who have other outlets, which I also think is why, you know, right now there's a lot of pull, push for censorship. But the good news is, you know what I mean? You're listening to this and... And you know what? You don't have to trust me anything. I have a funny last name. I have a I, I have a funny and a first name. I have a funny accent, you know, but you can actually, you can listen to me and you can go on and check these things out by yourself. You know what I mean? Look at the different sources. So, and, and you are able to bring that to your audience and you can bring various people and you, and you can have, and you know, uh, you have this ability to have this show a long, not that long ago, you would not have had the ability because you know what? Something, you know, no offense, but you would not have been on NPR. Okay. <laughs> Neither you or I uh, for that on, when it comes to this type of show. Okay. You know, you before there were gatekeepers who, who the gates truly were completely kept. Now there are other ways. You have listeners, you have others. And 
And eventually, I mean, as we see with success with Joe Rogan and others, you know, if you don't have to, the, the path to the path to listeners and viewers is not only one. So that's the good news, I think. And I was just going to add to that. I think, and I don't want to get into like uh, generational uh, disputes and, and generation bashing, but I think there's a younger generation of Americans that, you know, has information at their fingertips. They grew up with the internet. And I, I think more and more they're questioning American exceptionalism, American jingoism, how we carry out our policies, their effects. And I, I just think there's been a floodgates opened uh, because of that. And with every year, they're getting, they're getting older and they're getting closer to actually having real power, which is, which is so important. Uh, and again, uh, you know, I just want to also say thank you very much for your show and to your listeners. Thank you very much for keeping an open mind if you're if you've listened this far. Um, and I think it's just remember that it, it's not you either support Ukraine or you support Russian tanks rolling over Europe. You know what I mean? Like you can you can do both things. You can be critical and you can want the good things in Ukraine while warning about while warning about the bad things in Ukraine. And um you can do that while also so that is supporting Ukraine and that is supporting America because you know what neo the problem with neo Nazis is they're neo Nazis okay they're not going to grow out of it they're not going to just go away they're not going to be satisfied okay and with things like that it's like that is solving a problem okay and that, that doesn't mean you love Russia okay well I want to thank you again Levka Lincoln for coming on Parallax Views is there any way that my listeners can keep up with your work or I don't, I mean, uh, go to the nation, uh, go to the, I don't know, I don't really have an online. Not, not, a, not a social media guy, I understand, but yes, uh, I, well, I, I think people can Google your name, they'll find your work, and I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. My, my pleasure, thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lev Golinkin. It's a rather dark subject, this issue of the Azov Battalion and Ukraine's far right, and I hope that we handled it fairly and thoughtfully. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. This month, I'm really going to need your support. I need a little boost in the Patreon numbers to keep this project going. So if you can, head over to patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier. That angel donor tier will get you my eternal gratitude. But there's also a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And at the $10 tier and above you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and The Mere Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, then please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. 
again at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout out. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.